0: jd power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store and now save 50 percent on the sleep number limited edition smart bed for a limited time for jd power 2023 award information visit jdpower.com awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com
1: this is going to be hard and difficult work a coalition will throw up all sorts of challenges but I believe together we can provide that strong and stable government that our country needs based on those values rebuilding family, rebuilding community, above all, rebuilding responsibility in our country. Those are the things I care about. Those are the things that this government will now start work on doing. Thank you very much. It's 2005. The Conservative Party has just lost its third successive election, confirming its longest period in opposition since the 18th
0: century. The Demoralised Party Conference, hears a series of speeches from would-be leadership contenders. Much to the surprise of the bookmakers, the runaway sensation is the Shadow Education Secretary, a little-known Etonian by the name of David Cameron. Cameron becomes Conservative leader, offering a clean break
1: on a swathe of issues, From social issues, to international development, to Europe.
0: Cameron's election reduces the poll deficit between his party and Labour and, once the financial crisis hits, the party looks on course to win the next election.
1: But the result when it comes is a hung parliament and a coalition with the Liberal Democrats.
0: The coalition's programme includes heavy cuts to public spending and significant reforms to schools and welfare. All but the school reforms are heavily delayed and changed in office.
1: Facing grumbling from his Eurosceptic backbenchers, in 2013 Cameron is forced to commit to an in-out referendum should the Conservatives win the 2015 election.
0: His hopes of pulling off a victory for Remain are heightened when Scotland votes to stay in the United Kingdom in 2014.
1: To the surprise of the bookmakers, again, Cameron pulls off a surprise parliamentary majority in 2015.
0: But he is unable to repeat the trick. On the 23rd of June 2016, the United Kingdom votes to leave the European Union and Cameron resigns the next morning. I'm Stephen Bush. And I'm John Ellidge. Welcome to Prime Ministerial.
1: It's quite hard to escape, I think, the conclusion that David Cameron is probably in the running on his own terms to be one of our worst prime ministers, just in terms of his own sort of stated aims, right? He came in wanting to reduce... The deficit, basically that was sort of a failure. He wanted to park the question forever of of Britain's relationship with the EU in terms of the Conservative Party. That obviously did not work, and uh, we ended up leaving the European Union uh, by mistake. I think that's in many ways fast becoming the orthodoxy. However, one of the themes of this episode, and I can already see our arch-Remainer John Elledge starting to flare his nostrils at me, is, is... Going to be unpacking
0: that. I think the interesting thing about Cameron is his uh, conservatism in every sense. If you kind of think about his free referendums, if referenda, there was the AV referendum in 2011, there was the Scottish referendum in 2014, and then the EU one in 2016. And in each of them, he didn't support change. He supported the status quo, and just the referendum was uh, was a mechanism for getting everyone to shut up about it. And as with Tony Blair and his wars, he got away with that a couple of times, and then it all went horribly, horribly wrong. But, you know, it does kind of feel like almost there's a sort of lack of ambition to it. His his whole ambition for his premiership was to kind of keep things as they were. Okay, hang on a second. This is you know, this is present day, John. We recorded that segment as part of an interview you're about to hear quite a while ago now, way back in 2017. And listening back to, to all this, I sort of noticed that all our interviews about David Cameron really sort of obsess about one topic, which is a topic that, you know, we were all kind of obsessing about in 2017, which is, is Brexit his fault? But he was Prime Minister for more than six years, You know, there's a lot of other stuff going on in that time. There's a lot of stuff on schools reform, there was gay marriage. Also, I think the key thing that we don't talk about and probably should is austerity. Like, to what extent is austerity a factor here?
1: I actually, to be honest, think that all of the rest of his agenda is a bit of a red herring in terms of the purpose of the overall series. I actually think it would be a bit of a waste of time to discuss austerity or schools reform or anything else in in any particular detail, because the point of this series is not to do a kind of like David Cameron, good or bad, Palmerston, good or bad, Tony Blair, good or bad. It's a kind of assessing them in terms of what they wanted to achieve and their own uh, legacies were they any good at being the prime minister they wanted to be we wouldn't for example when we get back to palmerston uh, have a whole hour on whether or not imperialism is bad we would uh, just ask ourselves whether or not palmerston was a successful uh, empire builder and sustainer and i think in the case of cameron right in my view the economic consensus that austerity does not work is is pretty unimpeachable but unless you think that there is an, an interesting argument to be had about whether or not he could have uh, successfully cut farther, um, austerity is one of the areas, and as indeed with schools reform, where whenever one thinks about it, Cameron's claim to being a good prime minister is pretty strong. He wanted to balance the books. He successfully did so while winning re-election.
0: Did he, though? I mean, like, that whole campaign was based on, you know, we will end the deficit... They didn't do that. The point where the deficit closes got pushed further and further into the future, and it's still there. Austerity has sort of destroyed the public services and public realm, but it didn't do what it ostensibly set out to do, which was actually improve the state of Britain's finances. I mean, yeah, how can we call that a success? It did reduce the operating
1: surplus by quite a lot. The, the problem with that is essentially, like, the point is not to go, was David Cameron left wing? I mean, no, he wasn't. Okay. Um I I just think going, well austerity destroyed the public services, well that's the point. We're not yeah, you know, like okay. you know, again okay. to sort of go back to kind of you know, bonner it's, law or whatever. We're not going f- to assess Yeah, I actually think It's so- fine,
0: it's fine, I've got it. You're yeah. a Tory. That's fine.
1: Yeah, I'm just saying Stephen
0: Bush is a Tory.
1: It's a bit like but As long as we're clear. But I think the interesting point about this, right, is that at some point we will get down to the really fun beef about uh, various prime ministers' handling of Ireland. Now, I think that, say, Lloyd George's use of the black and tans is a much bigger criticism against him than the repressive measures favoured by Conservative Prime Ministers after Gladstone. Why? Because Lloyd George's party platform for 50 years had been to avoid what he directly helped to happen happening.
0: Stephen, I think maybe we shouldn't talk about Lloyd George and the David Cameron episode.
1: Fine, fine, fine. And anyway, here's Helen Thompson, who's professor at Cambridge, knows more about the Eurozone than most people alive, and is also on Talking Politics. I think one of the best uh, politics podcasts out there. Just join us in this section to discuss whether or not David Cameron could have made a better fist of negotiating with the European Union.
2: I think what's kind of forgotten about Cameron is that he actually came to office, or let's put it this way, that the Conservative Party fought the 2010 general election on a pretty radical policy towards the European Union. I mean, the Conservative Manifesto said that there was going to be a Sovereignty Act, which was going to make clear that final authority remained in Britain. It said that there was going to be a Referendum Lock Act, which in turn there was indeed in 2011, which basically said if there was any new treaty, then it had to be legitimated by a referendum in Britain. And it said that um, the Conservative Party in office would try to repatriate various powers. It wasn't entirely clear which of them it was going to be, but it was going to repatriate various powers to to Britain from the European Union. Now, that last one alone, which survived the coalition agreement, it is in the coalition agreement, was something that no member state had ever managed in the entire time of the European Union. So it's a pretty radical position that he put himself in. The sovereignty bill was dropped as part of the the coalition agreement. But I think the Referendum Lock Act had profound consequences for his ability to negotiate within the European Union. And I think that what happened was that he set himself up trying to achieve a reform that actually was impossible from the start, and that we should see the referendum really as the point in which, in some sense, he, I think, relatively consciously recognised the failure of the initial strategy upon which he'd embarked back in 2010 and tried to change tack, but he tried to change tack in a way in which he didn't have either the domestic political capital to pull off, or most importantly, the political capital within the European Union to pull off in terms of negotiating a new agreement.
1: Yeah, at the moment, uh, and obviously it'll be a completely different podcast to discuss the similarities or differences between Macron and and Cameron, but Macron is effectively trying to win support for a level of reforms that have failed and broken a series of governments across the Eurozone. Uh, He may succeed, he may not, but do you think um, there is would have been an alternate universe where Cameron could have, if he had made different decisions from 2010 onwards, ended up where he could have had the political capital?
2: I think that's a, a really hard question to answer, and I wonder if David Cameron even knows what the answer to that uh, himself is. I, I do think one thing is underestimated, and that is is once he agreed with Nick Clegg that the referendum lock would be something that the coalition would do, and that act was passed in, I think it was March 2011, and essentially said there could be no more treaty without there being a referendum on it in Britain, because unlike various other member states, Britain had never had a treaty, sorry, a referendum on a treaty. He made it extremely difficult to achieve what he was trying to achieve, and that was to use the Eurozone state's need for a treaty in order to leverage British reform out of that. But given that there was a very good chance, in fact, I would say an almost certain chance that such a referendum would have led to a treaty falling in Britain, and given I think it would have been much more difficult to say to British voters, actually, you can just vote on that again, which is a bit the EU's way of dealing with these things, I think that other players, not least Merkel, understood that actually Britain was now a veto player on a further treaty. And that meant when Cameron said, look, we'll use it, their need for a new treaty to get what we need out of it, that was incoherent. And in some sense, I think he understood that by the point he made his referendum promise, except the one caveat to that is he still said he wanted to use, initially, he said he wanted to use the treaty, uh, a a new treaty, in order to get the reform that would justify the referendum. Whether he believed that, I think, is is more dubious or not.
0: It's often sort of felt, to me at least, that Part of the problem was that Cameron often said his European policy was always about internal Tory party management. So going right the way back to, I don't know if it was 2005 or 2006, but right at the beginning of his leadership of the Conservative Party, when he pulled the Conservatives in the European Parliament out of the, the European People's Party grouping, which is the main Conservative grouping in that parliament, and started his own one which was entirely about kind of assuaging backbenchers but it did kind of cut off a lot of those kind of back channels of communication right so like to, to what extent was was this the problem
2: I think that that's just a symbolic issue to be honest I think there's two kind of pathways from the mid2000s that get us to the dilemmas that Cameron had and the first of them is the problem of democratic legitimacy, which is one that Tony Blair ran into if you remember that he wanted to have a said there would be a referendum on a constitutional treaty he didn't have to realize that promise because the French and the Dutch voted the treaty very helpful. very helpful of them then. Um, Gordon Brown was left in the position where he had to pretend the Lisbon Treaty wasn't really a constitutional treaty. In fact, he didn't turn up at the formal signing of it because he didn't want to be associated with it. But Cameron had got himself in the position of saying that he gave a, a hard, I think it was Castine guarantee with the words that he used, that if he were prime minister, there would be a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. Now, by the time he became prime minister, the treaty had been ratified, so it was too late. But that's, what, that's how he got into the position of this referendum lock, going into the 2010 manifesto. And then the other problem is the Eurozone crisis, which begins before Cameron becomes prime minister, but he he takes office essentially at the same time as the first Greek bailout happens. And then you have a succession of problems that are generated by that. And I think the most significant for what then happened to Cameron is the fact that the French government and the European Central Bank wanted to use the Eurozone crisis uh, in order to try to regulate London because London is the financial centre of the eurozone, and they saw quite reasonably that there was a problem in terms of their regulatory authority if the euro's financial centre was outside the eurozone and beyond the ECB's competence. But to do that involved discriminating against Britain as a member of the single market. And almost all the battles that Cameron gets into with the other European Union member states until the point of... the so I'd say until 2014 really, are really generated by the issues around that problem and his desire to try to find some way of protecting the city from regulation from Eurozone authorities. And I don't think that that is down to anything that happened with which party coalition in the um, party umbrella in the European Parliament, the Conservative Party, and that was a a real structural um, fault line that ran through Britain's membership of the European Union.
0: So I guess my question is, you know, was something like the referendum just kind of inevitable at some point? Because sooner or later, the EU would want to do something which would kind of force the issue in Britain? Was was Cameron really just kind of the guy who happened to be holding the, the bomb at the time?
2: I don't entirely buy that either. I mean, I think that Cameron's decision making Options had narrowed very considerably by the point of January 2013 when he made the, the Bloomberg speech about the, um, the referendum. I don't think that means he had no choice but to do that. But I think that there were understandable reasons why he thought that that was a way out of his what had been his failure um, up to that point. Where I think that it's really down on Cameron and it's really about personal things to do with him and his desire for George Osborne to succeed him as leader of the Conservative Party is about the timing of this referendum. Because if you actually looked at it as a problem of Britain, a structural problem of Britain's membership of the European Union and its non-membership of the Euro and what to do about that, you would have said, right, let the Germans and the French have their elections this year. Let's see what they're going to do about the five presidents' report and dealing with Eurozone reform. And then let's see afterwards what kind of relationship we can have and whether it's possible to sustain our membership once the Eurozone moves towards greater integration. But to say that he had to have a referendum by, I think his original deadline was by 2017. He has it in 2016. I think that was to do with trying to get it out of the way. He thought it would be one. He could pass the leadership of the party on to George Osborne. And in a structural strategic sense, it makes no sense whatsoever for Britain to have had a referendum in 2016 to try to sort this question out.
0: You know what? This is all very interesting, but it is very much an external view of the Cameron Ministry. What we really need to do is to hear from someone who's actually in the room. So, to that end, we spoke to Sir Craig Oliver, who from 2011 to 2016 was Downing Street's Director of Communications.
3: When I sat down to write the book Unleashing Demons, um, I spent an afternoon going through every argument and genuinely thinking, look, objectively, did David Cameron have to hold a referendum? on the eu and i came to the conclusion that he did and increasingly i've sort of had this argument with people since the book came out since the end of the referendum and i've never really felt that anybody's particularly understood the political reality of what the conservative prime minister at that time was dealing with and i think the reality is he'd been in a situation where every leader of the conservative party going back a generation had been undone by europe it was intensifying as an issue He'd been in a situation where in 2014 UKIP not only did well in the European elections, they actually won them. The party was making clear that it wasn't a manifesto commitment that he would be gone and somebody who would do it would be put in his place. So there's a whole load of reasons why I think it was a political reality at the time. And those who say it wasn't, I don't think understand what he was going through as leader. interesting counterfactual because obviously as as well in that time you you went over and were a key
1: player in the remain campaign one of the advantages vote leave had is they weren't the government and they could make a series of fairly sort of dubious claims dubious claims and kind of promises and they didn't have to keep because they were a transient organization um do you think perversely um even though it would have been the end of his premiership the referendum
3: campaign would have been easier for remain to defeat if you had had a pro-brexit government um possibly i think that the reality was a lot of people say well why was david cameron leading the charge in terms of the campaign and the truth is because no one else would do it um we really struggled to get business involved and to step up and be leaders and we considered getting very big names in business to consider doing this we really wanted to take advantage of our what was supposedly our great strength which was having the Labour leadership supposedly pro-Remain, the Green Party, the Liberal Democrats, the Trade Unions Congress, the whole lot. But the reality was getting those organisations to step up and to do it in a coherent way was very, very difficult. So we would be in a situation where we would ask the Labour leadership to do something like a morning media round, announce a policy, and at the last minute they'd pull the plug. They'd stand back say, we're not doing this. When they did do interviews, they criticised the campaign heavily. And I think what was really going on in the Labour Party was that they assumed, as everybody else did, Remain's probably going to win. So why help a Conservative Prime Minister get over the line? In fact, we, what we're supposed to be doing is damaging him as a brand. We expect him to win, but why help him?
0: I'm curious, at what point in the campaign did you first start getting the feeling that Remain was in trouble? And that this was going to be a bit more of a fight than I think anyone was assuming a few months earlier.
3: A couple of really key moments, I think, were when the cabinet collective responsibility was suspended. I don't think David Cameron expected the number of people who came out and supported Leave to do so. And to be as divisive, critical um, as they were. And then I think the other big moment was... 30 days out from the end of the campaign, the, the uh, immigration numbers came out and they were more than three times what the government thought they should be. And from that point on, immigration just took hold and gripped the campaign. Vote Leave, which had started in a position of being very, very heavy on sovereignty arguments, dropped them completely and wholesale took on the Nigel Farage argument of immigration and what was very difficult for remain at that point was to argue that they could do anything about this the european union had been clear that there wasn't going to be a fundamental reform of freedom of movement and also our bottom line was that we were recommending that people vote to remain in an institution that insists regardless of circumstances there is unlimited freedom of movement and that was a spectacularly hard to deal with particularly in that last 30 days where it felt like there was just an enormous furore. Every front page seemed to be obsessing about immigration for 30 days. And the bottom line was we didn't have a great answer. So I
1: kind of instinctively I, I agree. I, the, the idea that a Conservative Prime Minister would not have called a referendum in June 2016 is, is I think, fault for, for the birds. But I think it's harder to rebut the kind of Raphael Bear thesis. And one of the problems was up until February 2016. One of the most eloquent and popular at the time politicians in the country was kind of giving the impression that maybe leaving the EU was something which could be entertained. Uh, Then there had been seven years of the uh, of the immigration cap as a policy, and that all helped the uh, the momentum towards leave. Do you think that is a more fair charge or do you again sort
3: of feel the internal politics of the Conservative no, Party? No, I think is? it's absolutely true that lots of politicians in Britain for 40 years traded off criticising the EU. And David Cameron was one of them. He was Eurosceptic a lot of the time. And it's often, a lot of people believe it would have been hard for him to become leader of the Conservative Party as he did in 2005 without showing some degree of Euroscepticism. I often felt during the campaign that I wished I had a time machine that we could go back 40 years and make the case for immigration and make the case for the EU. But the reality was it was dealt with in as far as it touched anybody's lives as a kind of caricature organisation that wanted to take away your prawn cocktail crisps, didn't like bendy bananas and curly cucumbers, and actually was constantly criticised. And so the reality was, yes, would we have been in a better position if there had been a longer argument for why the eu makes sense but politicians of all sides and all stripes traded off criticizing it
0: given that as as you acknowledge the the eu had been a contentious issue for a quarter of a century politicians on on either side of the house had not really stood up for it as an institution or made the case for it and the immigration figures were you know immigration was a very salient issue even if those specific figures hadn't emerged something probably would Do you think the referendum was winnable or do you think this was always the most likely outcome? No, I
3: think it was winnable. And I don't think it's possible to say because of one particular thing that we lost. There were an enormous number of reasons why we lost. I have no doubt that if Boris Johnson and Michael Gove had not been on the Leave side, that would have made a difference. Um, if the Labour Party had taken the campaign by the scruff of the neck and said, I tell you what, the Conservative Party is obviously split on this issue. We are going to lead. We are going to be clear. That would have been a great situation. I also think it's also true that if politicians from right across the political spectrum had made the case for immigration and made the EU for a number of years, that too would have made a difference. There are lots and lots of things that got us into a situation where quite a narrow win
0: by leave happened. You've listed a number of things that could have changed the situation. I'm kind of curious, is there anything from within the campaign you think you should have done differently?
3: Well, the biggest question that I get asked is why weren't you more positive? And it usually comes from people who were always going to vote to stay in the EU. There's this kind of mood, which the likes of Peter Mandelson put forward, that if we'd all linked arms and sang Ode to Joy um, and told everybody how great it was, that would have worked. But that's actually not really the case. And that's because what happens in campaigns is you do an enormous amount of research into the electorate, way beyond what an individual poll would be, but a model of the country. And then you segment that, that into groups. And on the one side, you have people who are going to vote to leave the EU come what may. And on the other side, you've got people who are going to vote to stay come what may. And in the middle, you've got the people who are winnable. And what we discovered was that there was this group in the middle called Heads versus Hearts that were absolutely crucial to who how, how they were going to vote in the e- EU referendum. And when you put a very, very positive case to the about the EU to them, they were relentlessly negative in return. They didn't believe that this institution was somehow some wonderful miracle of collaboration and it was great for the UK to be involved. What they were interested in was the question of, is it going to harm us financially as a country and as individuals? And if you could make the case to them that it was going to harm the country financially and them as individuals, they were far more likely to vote remain. Now, that is why the campaign was so relentlessly focused on the economy and on money. And people who in their core, in their DNA, think that we should just be part of the EU because it's a wonderful institution, find it very, very hard to understand that. In terms of the kind of The prime minister's approach to the to the referendum
1: was it looking back a mistake to have made the renegotiation such a big part of the run-up into that sort of February speech and that decision to say look I'm going to back an in vote given and over the six years previous it had not as if there had been a great deal of success in getting concessions from the EU27 on a variety of issues?
3: Well, anybody who's an expert in terms of how the EU operates would argue that the Brit- Britain got a pretty good deal. Um, the the Leavers had always made the case that um, getting rid of Ever Closer Union was a really important thing. Um, and if you look at all their speeches and articles before, they said that this was central to it. We can't be signed up to Ever Closer Union. David Cameron got rid of it. There were a number of other things that were big concessions from the EU. The problem was that on immigration, before, during and after, Angela Merkel made clear we're not fundamentally reforming freedom of movement. And that was a big problem. And I think the other thing was we allowed ourselves to be in a situation where the outcome of the renegotiation, we allowed people to run away with the idea that we could get more than we ever probably could have done. And that meant fundamental reform on immigration. So from that perspective, I do think that that was a mistake. And then it allowed the leavers to say, to mock it, caricature it, present in the mail, on the telegraph and express that this is hopeless, when in fact, actually, there had been quite a bit of change.
1: I think the fascinating thing, in a way, is the the difficulty with all of this series is the assessing of them as a party leader and as a prime minister is sometimes it feels in direct conflict with David Cameron, obviously, the record as a party leader is is basically unarguable in terms of his electoral success. Yeah, that massive set of gains in 2010 and the first majority in 2015. But one looks at the Conservative Party now, it's not led from a kind of Cameroon direction, nor is there a particularly large second generation of uh, politicians in that Cameron Osborne mold. Could he have done better to ensure that there was kind of a second great team, as it were?
3: You can always say such things. I mean, the reality is, I think he tried early on to have things like an A-list, which was essentially people of his ilk parachuted in. And the record of constituencies with that was very poor. Um, So local members need or choose MPs. The reality is that People who tend to be members of the Conservative Party and choose as MPs tend to be extremely Eurosceptic and socially quite conservative. So they choose that kind of grouping of people. The point I would make is under David Cameron, as you said, under sound money and socially liberal values, it went up in 2010 and went up again in 2015. When the Conservative Party stopped talking about sound money in 2017 and stopped talking about socially liberal values, it went down. I would argue the two are connected.
0: What do you think his legacy is? What do you think was survive from the Cameron Premiership?
3: Well, I think the first thing, the, the first major achievement in terms of a party leader is he made the Conservative Party electable again. And he took them from a position where I think they had 198 seats to over 330 seats and that they were a party of power again and that they were taken very very seriously as being a party of power he's definitely stabilized the country and the economy after the 2008 banking crash and he also had things like investment in apprenticeships um a jobs miracle uh socially liberal values like gay marriage went through so a lot of things that i think that you can say He did. I would also talk about international aid as a major success and putting Britain as a kind of superpower in that area and the ability to use that not just to help people, but a soft power around the world. So I think there's a lot of people who will look back and say, you know, he did did a number of things which changed the country. And a couple of weeks ago, he was at the 1922 committee and they gave him a book by Winston Churchill, the first edition, and there was sort of rapturous applause and a huge amount of enthusiasm for him. And I think quite often there is that sense of, you know, in the Joni Mitchell song, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And I think there are quite a lot of conservatives who are looking back and saying, actually, he was pretty much on to something and he did help the party and strengthen the party.
0: I mean, after you've described it like that, I'm now kind of looking back fondly on those years. But it does feel like a lot of those values and ideas are now under attack from within the conservative party i mean how do you think there was a did he fail to shift the party's culture in such a way to kind of embed that legacy as i suppose i, what don't know. I
3: think that, that you know there's ebbs and flows and uh, you know a trajectory upwards is often with little dips down and then a bit more up i think that there are a lot of people in the conservative party who are basically saying it was a mistake in 2017 to abandon the, the focus on sound money. So a lot of people are critical of people who are involved in communications and try and create narratives and think it's all just waffle and nonsense. I think there's a really, really telling example of why it's not. Pre-2016, probably the key word in British politics was deficit. And the reason for that is because it was talked about consistently and unrelentingly by the Conservative Party. That was dropped post-David Cameron. And what the Labour Party did is make the keyword austerity. Now, that you could say the two sides of the same coin, but if you're emphasizing austerity or you're emphasizing the problem with the deficit, there's a world of difference in terms of how people see that problem. And at the moment, it feels to me as if the Labour Party is controlling that narrative, controlling that debate. And it's because the, the Conservative Party let go of that and loosened that. And I think there's a lot of people in the Conservative Party at the moment who are thinking, You know what? That was important and we need to get back onto that.
0: So the conclusion we seem to be veering towards is, depressingly, that any Conservative Prime Minister would have had something like the Brexit referendum. The question, I guess, is whether any other Prime Minister could have won it. Here's the rest of our chat with Helen Thompson.
2: Various countries have had referendums to join the European Union and and been positively so. And the French voted very narrowly in favour of the Maastricht Treaty in 1992. But they're risky businesses. Any nobody who looked at the history of them should have thought, okay, governments just need to put their credibility behind these referendums and they'll turn out all right. In that sense I think that um that Cameron was extraordinarily complacent. And you know, there's obviously been various reports. I think this is in the Tim Shipman book that, you know, that Linton Crosby told him in February that the election that the referendum could not be won, that he'd come back with nothing as a deal that was going to make the slightest bit of difference. Indeed, I would say that the the very fact that he attempted the negotiation actually made winning the referendum more difficult. He would have been better placed, I think, to have just gone for a straight referendum without engaging in the, the renegotiation, because all the renegotiation demonstrated, indeed, I would say could ever have demonstrated, was that British influence in the European Union was weak. And once you've shown that, then actually saying, okay, this is a political union in which Britain should stay apart is a pretty difficult argument to win
1: in terms of the the demonstration of weakness to what extent because you know from from 1997 to sort of the mid noughties, the Blair government was fairly explicitly pro-European the brown government was still pro-European but in a kind of sort of slightly more shame-faced way and then that very much was not the public position of the Cameron government but as you've already said because of the changes in the eurozone and the political response to that britain became something of an outsider anyway how how much can cameron really be yeah can cameron be blamed for the fact that britain was going into those negotiations without any real chance of getting any type of reform
2: i think in a way that he can in the sense that i don't think he learnt the lessons which were there to be learnt from how badly he'd been exposed in december 2011 when he tried to veto the fiscal pact well he did veto it becoming an eu treaty but simply the other states went ahead minus the czech republic and did it outside the eu treaty and cameron said that they wouldn't be able to use european union institutions and well they were able to use european union institutions so he'd already actually had a, a pretty clear demonstration of um, how difficult it was for britain to get what it wanted um, in such matters so i think in that sense he was extremely complacent. I think the question of whether there was a deal to be had that would have made it possible to win the referendum and that Merkel could have been persuaded to make more concessions than she did, I think that's a harder counterfactual to work out. Um, we know that she's told him apparently that it wouldn't have made any difference what he did. I mean, but that's easy for him, her to say to him um, after the event. What is clear is is that All the things that he said he was going to ask for in 2013 or many of the things on immigration in particular then he he didn't even ask for and it's not clear i don't think that he ever really made her believe that if concessions weren't forthcoming then there was a good chance britain was leaving the european union so in that sense i don't think he ever put merkel to the point where merkel had to say okay what is it that i want here do i want britain in the european union or not she thought that she could keep Britain in the European Union, I think, without really having to expend any political capital to do so. And I think that Cameron has to take some of the responsibility, at least, for the fact that he didn't disturb her judgment about that.
1: In terms of, sort of some of the you know, the, the big unasked-for reform, I think in terms of you know, what Bez suggests about why people voted to leave, it's probably uh, free movement. Um, but because of what's happened with the Eurozone, there is now this situation where... Britain becomes the employer of last resort by default, does that, you know, and obviously it's a slightly moot question, seeing as we have voted to leave and it looks fairly likely that we, we in fact will, um, but, you know, even if he had done that, you know, do you think those pressures on, on Britain's EU membership uh, could have been eased through internal reform or would it always have been too politically painful on the EU side to say, actually, no, you, you might be unemployed, but you can't go to Britain's uh, labour market?
2: It would have been extremely hard, I think, for, for the EU to engage in any significant reform of freedom of movement. Whether an emergency break could have been given, I think that that is not so, so, so difficult to imagine, at least in, in principle. And that's where, that's the question that Cameron never ended up putting to Merkel and saying to her effectively, if you want Britain to stay in the European Union, you need to give me this. And he, there's no evidence whatsoever that he said that um, to her. I think the timing here matters again as well, though, because if you look at the the timeline in terms of when UKIP starts to become a, a rising force in, electorally at least, in um, British um, politics, it really starts from in 2012. And that's the same point in which the Eurozone is deep in its crisis. And that you can begin to see significant migration from southern Europe into Britain's, into Britain, into the British labour market. Now, the eurozone Greece accepted has had a recovery over the last year or so, particularly actually Spain, the Spanish economy. So you could argue that actually with a bit more time than that, role that Britain was playing with Germany as an employer of last resort would actually have been lessened because the Eurozone would have been further out of its recession. But the really, if you like, killer point in this is really late 2012, 2013, when the Eurozone economy is going back into recession, particularly in Southern Europe, and the British economy is growing. And there you can really see the difference in terms of what goes on in terms of the numbers of people coming from Southern Europe prior to that, and then in the period that starts from 2012. So in that sense, Cameron held his referendum at a time in which there wasn't, um, not enough Eurozone growth had happened to lessen what that pressure would have been. It's odd, so I actually, I I started
1: this this sort of segment, I think feeling slightly more sympathetic towards Cameron. I do sort of think that to be honest, any conservative government with a majority since Maestricht was going to want to have a referendum on European participation. I think the way you would win the EU referendum in this country would be step one, invent a time machine, go back to 1992 and keep arguing for the EU being a good thing, which means and by the time David Cameron even becomes leader in 2005, this idea, then. well I think Ken Clark had stress tested by that point whether or not you could become Conservative leader while being unashamedly pro-european so i think the kind of backdrop of eurosceptic sediment which sort of buried stronger in i kind of don't think was really fixable in that time but and i would have said yeah at the the start then the problems of the eurozone and the fact that we are becoming a multi-speed europe does make it very hard to be a nation in the periphery particularly if you are britain which has its the idea of itself, whether correctly or not, as a major player, and then all of those things I think make it harder but i I realized the thing I wasn't expecting is to feel that she slightly that Cameron probably could have kept us in if he had done things differently. You're looking very angry with me
0: I just keep coming back to this the sort of you know the flashman idea of Cameron that he's just kind of a bit he 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 gets his way by sort of a bit of bluster and bullying. And it just always felt to me like he never really kind of cultivated the relationships within Europe that would have made it at least possible for someone to turn around and say, well, how about an emergency break? He never did the sort of thing that made people want to help him out. So if you go back to the summer of 2015 when the Mediterranean refugee crisis was kicking off, at which point Cameron had just won this majority unexpectedly, his political capital was as high as it had ever been and in retrospect as high as it was ever going to be. And at the same uh, summit where he went to kind of start talking about renegotiation, he made a big statement about how Britain would not be taking its share of refugees. And it just felt like he wasn't willing to kind of make a gesture that would be seen as problematic to the British tabloids, even though it might have kind of won him the support on the continent that would help him out later. It just didn't feel like he was kind of willing to play in those sort of power relationships or sort of take any risks.
2: I think the problem, though, with that argument is, is that simply that on un- the most important issues facing Britain, there weren't allies to be had. And this is where I think it really matters that Britain's position was unique. It isn't just that Britain wasn't a member of the Eurozone. I mean, a number of other European Union member states are not members of the Eurozone, but they don't have the Eurozone's financial centre. And and that meant that there were a whole series of battles that went on, particularly about this desire effectively to discriminate against Britain in the single European market in relation to financial services. That simply didn't affect those states. And you can see it in the fact that actually, of all the Eurozone measures that were taken from 2010 to 2015, every other non-Eurozone member state of the European Union signed up to at least one of them, whether it be the Fiscal Pact or the Banking Union. Um, Britain was alone in not in in, in in basically saying no to the more now you can, can turn around and say okay well Britain should have been more cooperative but there wasn't any interest for Britain to be more cooperative when you look at the substantive issues at stake unless you want to turn around and say okay then Britain should have accepted the that the ECB could regulate London as a financial centre and and no British Prime Minister was going to let that happen regardless of what the rights or wrongs of having a large financial centre, the reality is is that no British Prime Minister is going to think that it is that is something that it can allow um, the ECB to do.
1: It does sort of, again, to kind of, obviously, I think, well, with all of these episodes, we end up both looking forward and looking back how much the, the great achievement of the Brownites from 1997 to 2007 in terms of political economy is keeping Britain out of the euro... But the odd thing is is you realize if we were in it although we would have all sorts of other economic problems then it does completely change and probably and I don't see how Brexit can happen once you've given up your currency.
2: I think that's right. I mean, I think that you know the European Union as a whole has obviously got a number of crises that are running through it or potential for crises that are running through it, but it's a completely different proposition for any eurozone member to leave the european union or even to leave the eurozone because they have to deal with a massive financial crisis is the first thing that happens if you're not a member of the eurozone that that isn't a risk Uh, so i mean there's plenty of other risks but not that currency um risk so in that sense is uh, i don't think britain could have left the european union if it had been in the eurozone because uh, it would have precipitated in a massive economic crisis in doing so. At the same time, I, I'm not, I've i never entirely been able to convince myself of a counterfactual where Britain did join the single currency.
1: So obviously at the beginning, I was more sympathetic. You were fairly opposed. We've spoken to Helen Thompson and Craig Oliver. Um, what, what are your sort of
0: immediate thoughts? So I kind of, I found talking to Craig very interesting. I did feel he was quite Panglossian. There were a lot of bits where, like you know, we pushed him on various things, and his response was always yes, but if you looked at the situation, we couldn't possibly have done anything better. And I think that's in in some ways that is an admirable quality to be sort of loyal to a, a boss and a friend. But I'm not necessarily sure that. That it, it was giving a fair assessment to. Like, I, 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 I still think there are for, for all the difficulties of circumstances both within the Conservative Party and without. I, I kind of feel that David Cameron could have handled things differently if he had made different choices, and it's possible that we would not now be in the mess we are in.
1: Yeah, I think the things. I think that I started this sort of this week in a much more kind of the position that Craig was outlined, which was the... Because you're a Tory. Because I'm a Tory. Um, <clears throat> because I uh, thought that the problem, you know, the name of the... David Cameron was the name of the monster, not the doctor, that the Conservative Party was the one which was responsible for driving the referendum. The first majority since Maestricht was always going to uh, lead to a referendum. I still think that is broadly true, but the thing I was struck by talking to Helen is that it just became increasingly clear to me as we've been making this week's episode that yes the referendum may have happened but so many other things the the long decision not to defend free movement the institutions of the european union to treat it as you know a problem to be solved or escaped from basically until february of 2016 allowing the timing of the referendum to be dictated so much by his own interest in getting George Osborne to replace him. I just think, yeah, I feel that my opinion of David Cameron and my sympathy towards him is is much sm- lower than it was at the start of, of this week.
0: Well, that's cheered me up. Something I kind of think we've talked about less than I was perhaps expecting. We've We've just talked so much about Brexit, but I don't think we've kind of really dug into the other half of the Cameron narrative which is austerity we kind of touched on that with with Craig Oliver um, but we would, he, he was putting it in terms of he used the phrase sound money and talking about the deficit and so as if austerity is an entirely Labour term my feeling has always been that that's a matter of political language and that actually austerity is not something that the Labour Party made up it is something that's been felt by a large proportion of the population, a large and growing proportion of the population. And surely that also feeds into the general sense of dissatisfaction that in June 2016 came to a head in the referendum. Well, I think one of the
1: striking things about um, Michael Ashcroft's The Lost Majority, which studies the 2017 election, is at the beginning he talks about 2015 and one of the things which happened in 2015 isn't George Osborne was able to build an electorally viable coalition for further cuts effectively by not cutting spending for 37% of of the country right and they effectively austerity did not happen for a large chunk of people who voted conservative and the ones who it had happened thought that it would stop fairly soon for them even though they thought the cuts in general had to continue and so I do think kind of fatigue at the cuts was a large part of, of what happened in, in the most recent election. I think one of the reasons why we haven't discussed um, austerity very much is in some ways that feels like the most open and sharp bit of his legacy. Um, it, it's failed on its own terms, right? Even if you don't accept the prevailing economic consensus that the cuts have not worked and have not really been necessary, um, we've had the lowest productivity growth since the invention of the steam engine. We've had uh a decade in which no one's had a wage rose, And actually, the public finances are not repaired, right? Austerity has not worked on, in terms of the two metrics for grading a prime minister, you know, kind of an, an attempt to have some kind of objective fact. And the thing we're trying to do, which is assessing what they wanted to do. And I think on both metrics, Cameron comes out quite badly on the
0: austerity stuff. The other thing about austerity is if you do buy into the argument that it was a contributing factor in the 2016 referendum, that is also sort of self-cancelling, because if we do end up with a no-deal scenario, then we're going to have to spend an enormous amount of money on things like you know customs checks and you know all the sort of regulatory agencies we're going to have to start. That is going to increase the size of the state in a way that Gordon Brown could only have dreamt of.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that is the kind of the tragedy of David Cameron is you know, astonishing electoral success, turning the Conservative Party around politically. But, politically, a study in failure.
0: And as of all the best tragedies, as of all the best tragic heroes, he's still painfully unaware of his own tragic flaw.
1: You've been listening to Prime Ministerial, with me, Stephen Bush, political editor of The New Statesman.
0: And me, John Eulich, author of the compendium of Not Quite
1: Everything. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson.
0: With special thanks to Caroline Crampton and Nick Hilton.
1: Thanks for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe.